Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is John Wall. I'm in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method here at LSE, and it's my great pleasure to be welcoming you all uh, to this uh, Popper Memorial Lecture, and especially our distinguished speaker. I'll talk a little bit about her in a second. Let me first of all say a little bit about Karl Popper. Uh, easy for those of us who were around when he was to forget that he's not been around for quite a while. Um, he came to the LSE in 1946 uh, from New Zealand. He originally got out of Vienna uh, because of the Nazis in 1937. And then, come to, uh, to, and then come from New Zealand to the LSE. He worked at the LSE until his retirement in the late 60s, 68, 69, and of course did very influential work. In, in pretty well everybody's est estimation, he's one, uh, at least one of the most important uh, scholars to have worked for a long time at the LSE, and many people uh, believe the most important. And certainly one looks at uh, his impact outside of academic philosophy, I don't think there's any doubt that he's the, um, the, 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 the most, uh, had the greatest impact of, of any philosopher of science post uh, the Second World War. He, he, he lives on very much in our hearts and in, and in the department. We, uh, there's a bust of Popper, uh, kindly donated by the Austrian government, uh, just outside my office in fact. Um, we, we, we still call our research, main research uh, seminar the Popper Seminar. It's still held from, on Tuesdays from 2 to 4 when Popper himself used to, used to hold it. We have a Popper Prize. And above all, I like to think that we, that we live on in his intellectual legacy, not, not in the sense of uh, propounding any distinctly Popperian view, but in very much in the style in which we do philosophy. When Popper came to England, uh, philosophy was dominated by ordinary language, Oxford linguistic philosophy, which sp spent a lot of time analyzing the sort of semantics of ordinary discourse. And Popper saw very clearly that the really interesting philosophy was always that that, that was done in close contact with science, natural science and social science. And I think that's become an ever more widespread view, but I, I, I like to think that we were in the vanguard of that movement and, and that it really owes it uh, origin to Popper. Okay, so when he died in uh, 1994, there was a memorial appeal and a fund was raised and that's what allows us to run this uh, lecture biennially, this memorial lecture every other year and then the, the fallow year so to speak that's when we have a graduate prize Popper prize uh, for the best piece of research by a graduate student at the LSE uh, and I should say in connection with this um, with this lecture that we have benefited from uh, funds supplied by the Austrian Cultural Forum to help defray the costs of the event okay so that's so much for Popper uh, let me say a little bit about uh, our distinguished speaker Helga Novotny uh, she is, as most of you know, President of the European Research Council. She's Professor Emerita of Social Studies of Science at the ETH in Zurich. She has doctorates from, two doctorates, from Columbia in New York and from Vienna. She has, uh, she's on any number of editorial and advisory uh, boards and panels, quite frequently the chair of, of them, very, very active scholar. Uh, has more than 300 articles in scholarly and scientific journals and publishes uh, a good number of books, the, the two most recent of which, uh, both published by MIT, are Naked Genes Reinventing the Human in, in the Molecular Age, co-written with Giuseppe Testa, 
And in 2008, also MIT Press, Insatiable Curiosity, Innovation in a Fragile Future. Some of the themes in that book will be taken up, up tonight. So speaking now as chair of the Popper Memorial Committee, we were delighted when she uh, agreed to give the 2013 Popper Memorial Lecture. It's obviously on a wonderful topic. Um, I think the ration, dealing rationally with uncertainty is one of the great problems of our age that we need to face up to. Uh, and so with the added information that you will get a chance to ask uh, Professor Novotny questions at the end, there'll be a question and answer period um, for the last half hour or so, uh, I just uh, invite her to uh, come and deliver her proper memorial lecture under the title The Cunning of Uncertainty. Thank you very much, John, and welcome everyone this evening. This is a great honor for me to be here. But at the very beginning, I have to say, although I'm from the same city as Papa, I've never met him in person in my life. However, I had encounters, intellectual encounters, with Papa, and there were three of them. The first one was the encounter with Papa the persona of Popper in the wake of the revival Vienna 1900, Wittgenstein's Vienna. There were a number of books written by historians, Alan Janik and, and others, going back to this uh, very fertile, although written with tension period in Vienna, and in a sense this was part of a kind of intellectual pantheon that in the 70s when these books came out uh, Austria was a bit nostalgic about. 1900, this is of course a symbolic year but actually uh, it covers the period until 1938 when uh, Hitler uh, took over and a number of the best intellectuals and scholars had to leave Austria and we heard that Popper left already before. So this is one encounter with Popper and the Vienna Kreis and Wittgenstein and, and all the others. Then I encountered Popper in a surprising way talking to decision makers. And they all knew about Popper, so from this point of view he was not a philosopher's philosopher, but he was a decision maker's philosopher in the sense that they all picked out one of his ideas, namely falsificationism. And when I read his autobiography, The Unended Quest, I was struck that he as a young man had decided not only to study but also to learn a craft namely to become a carpenter. And somehow in my mind I thought that there must be a link between the decision of a young person to become a carpenter and then later to come up with the idea of falsification on this. But this is for another discussion. Mm -hmm. And my third encounter was during my years at Columbia University, John mentioned it already, and I was studying with Robert Merton, one of the founding figures of what was then called sociology of science, which is now called social studies of, of science. And uh, Bob Merton 
very much uh, took up the idea that will also be the red thread through my talk, namely that of unintended consequences. And I do not recall, this is for historians of sociology to find out whether Robert Merton mentioned Popper and his idea in that context, but in general, uh, Merton was very conscientious about filiation and affiliation of ideas. So I think it is very likely that, uh, that he did. And these unintended, conse unintended consequences, as you know, was something that Popper thought was one of the main tasks of the social sciences, and I will take him serious in trying to follow this. Uh, my lecture will consist of five parts, in the f and I will use a PowerPoint, but don't look too much at the PowerPoint. Um, I will begin by uh, recalling what I call the craving for certainty and the kind of um, relapses into fears and anxiety this causes when this craving for certainty is not fulfilled. And this also has to do with historical profiles of fear, and it also has to do with changing notions of the future that uh, we also undergo uh, at this very present. I will then speak um, about the um, uncertainties, but in particular about risks and danger, technological risks, and coping with risks. In the third part, I will go into unintended consequences, and um, some of them that I want to single out. And in four and five, I want to bring up two ways of what I see and where I see the cunning of uncertainty at work. And I will wrap it up very briefly with saying something about science, innovation, and democracy. So let's first begin with this fascination with prophecies and uh, predictions. Some archaeologists tell us that uh, some of the very early artifacts that have been signed with signs that are very difficult to decipher have really had one social function, namely the function of an oracle. So apparently this desire to know more about the future, what is in it uh, for, for us, has a very, uh, very old origin in the evolution of, of humankind. And of course, um, we know about self-fulfilling prophecies, again, something that Popper worked on, that Bob Merton also worked on. Um, but we also uh, know about the many attempts that have been made Contrative waves and other cycles that come back, for instance, in innovation cycles, they have fallen out of fashion now. Fashions themselves are cycles that come and go. And um, these regularities and the search for regularities in history has been one way of trying to get uh, a handle on what is happening and, of course, to be able to predict where are we uh, and when is the next wave coming. But the difficulty, as you are all aware, is to know precisely where on the curve are we right now. It's very nice to see the curves, but then exactly to know at which point we are 
is very difficult uh, to answer. But we should also keep in mind that it's not only the changes, societal changes that we are witnessing, but we always have to bear in mind that the knowledge that a society has about itself and of course about nature and the interactions between nature and society keeps also changing. Now this is Karl <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Popper uh, and he's very, very direct in this, very straightforward saying the practical usefulness of the social sciences, he tries to uh, to tell them not to yield the temptation to imitate the natural sciences with the predictions, nor to have an inferiority complex because they cannot predict political and other developments. But the main task is to trace the unintended social repercussions of intentional human actions. Now, <clears throat> if we look back in, in history, um, this long uh, historical development um, can be characterized with uh, escaping from the idea that everyone's fate has been fixed, be it by gods, being by other authorities and higher powers, and uh, moving towards the discovery that at least to some extent we are able to shape our own personal destiny, but also societal shaping. And what is interesting is that in the middle of the 18th century in <coughs> Europe, something happened that had not happened before, namely uh, the future became something that appeared open, that was not predetermined, preset with an afterlife that would begin um, at the end of time, but rather uh, it was an evolving open horizon. And the project of modernity, as we all know, has been carried out under the banner of individual autonomy. The bourgeois self was very much implicated in this and science and technology with their uh, determination and their uh, goal of human betterment played a major role in this. Now let's look at some of the historical profiles of fear. And as I said before, fear arises when this craving for certainty cannot be fulfilled. And there is no end of fears. Um, if you look around in our society today, with uh, not only the books, but the kind of media bombardment that we are undergoing, uh, the fear of terrorism, the fear of climate change, the fear of so many other things uh, that try to push us in acting in a certain direction or giving up privacy because for the sake of security, etc., you will start to appreciate that each age, or perhaps must not even be an age, each period, each society has its specific profile of what causes fear. And beginning with uh, the Middle Age, de Lumont, um, I have not found an English a translation of his work, he uh, is a French historian who has looked at what were people afraid of in the Middle Ages, 
looking not only at texts but also at stones, at stelas, and one of the remarkable discoveries of a fear that seems to us today completely strange that he uncovered is that cemeteries were moved outside of the city walls. Now you may wonder why uh, is this uh, something remarkable. Well, the reason is very simple, because in the Middle Ages there was a persistent and pervasive fear of the so-called revenants, the dead people coming back to haunt the living, uh, and therefore it would be safer to put the cemeteries and the tombs out of which these ghosts arose to put them outside the city walls. So this is just one of the many examples that partly open to us a world that seems very, very distant and very strange to us today. And partly, of course, uh, the Middle Ages were plagued uh, by illnesses, they were plagued by violence. So there were <clears throat> a lot of the insecurities and uh, reasons to fear that, um, that, that we know um, so well over the ages. Barbara Tuckman's uh, another book, uh, <clears throat> A Distant Mirror, uh, takes us to the 14th century and what is remarkable about this book is that she traces the life of one of the uh, minor aristocrats in the 14th century and we can sort of live with this person and the fears that he experienced by one day being invited uh, to the court, being given office, being uh, honored, and the next day ending up in prison, but eventually he would get out of prison again. And so you get a very a lively feeling of what it must have meant, uh, even as a minor aristocrat, not one of the many poor people whose life, of course, could also change from one day to the next. And um, <clears throat> this was another experience of fear. And then, of course, there is the magistral book by Keith Thomas, Religion and the Decline of Magic. It starts around 1500, again, leading us into a world uh, of superstition, of spells, of uh, witches and witch hunting um, that we know of and it ends uh, rather uh, abruptly uh, in the 17th century with the rise of science, modern science in those days. And when I first read the book, I was really struck by the um, sort of irreversible changes that were brought about in England in that particular period when uh, you had all of a sudden, you had uh, fire uh, codes that changed the building material, which of course reduced very much uh, the likelihood of fire breaking out, and a whole range of prescriptions of prayers, of superstitious practices, were swept away from one day to the next. Or he also speaks about the early uh, rise of newspapers. And all of a sudden, people now, if some object that they treasured uh, got lost, 
instead of praying to this saint or that saint and uh, again engaging in a lot of um, what we call today superstitious practices, they could place an ad into the newspaper. I have lost this object and in case you find it, I'm going to reward you. So there are these sudden changes that were brought about and of course, as I said, uh, I'm not going to detail here the kind of profiles of fear of today, but I, one of my favorite is this satirical novel by, um, by Nathaniel Rich, The Odds Against Tomorrow. And being a, a satirical novel, it starts um, and it's built around a character by the name of Mitchell Zucker and he thrives on disasters. He works for a firm that is called Future Worlds and Future Worlds sells to its clients uh, fears. So not in order to protect the clients but rather to help them in lawsuits once the disaster has struck and they are being sued. So you notice the satirical twist of uh, this character's work and uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful spoof on the way how someone really can excessively uh, be engaged in all kinds of disaster uh, scenarios and um, until the moment when real disaster strikes. But that's for you to read if you're interested in it. Now, I would also maintain that in order to, even if I can only sketch it, but to give you the broader picture, we also have to take into account um, the underlying sense of time that again changes in history. Although we all in the living world, uh, it's the, the human world, we distinguish in all societies as anthropologists tell us, everyone in the world distinguishes between the past, the present and the future. But what you put into the past, how you imagine the present and what you do of the future shows great and interesting variations. And I mentioned already, this is Reinhard uh, Koselik, the, the historian, this tension in, uh, in uh, the middle of the 18th century between experience, what was actually achieved, and expectations that people's aspirations were launched into something that changed the future from being closed, from being uh, foreseeable in a deterministic sense to something that was open and was in some way also evolving and that left scope for people's aspirations of human betterment, not in the next world, but in this world. And this, of course, is very much linked to the idea of progress, although historians of science uh, are very adamant in telling us in those days it was the belief in science, it was the belief in progress, while the actual deliveries had to wait longer. So it was a very strong driving force, and Joel Moke, the economic historian, 
who has written about the enlightened uh, economy in Britain from 1700 uh, onwards, he also makes very much the point that it, several, um, <coughs> several uh, components had to be brought together, not only the belief in progress, but of course knowledge, technology and institutions. Regu regulations and institutions that were safeguarding and uh, enabling this enlightened economy to take off. Now, if we do a comparison with what has happened since, and I take the book Limits to Growth that some of you may remember. This was the Club of Rome. It came out in 1972. It was the beginning of the environmental movement, so to say, the official beginning. And uh, it was um, sponsored and uh, written by Dennis Meadow and, and uh, his, his wife using computer models and the book created a furore. It was the fascination that there was a computer model that could tell you what would happen. This was the first time that this was actually used. The book was translated, I don't know in how many languages, and sold millions of copies all over the world. And rereading it, and I, uh, I was asked by the Volkswagen Foundation at one point to go back to their archives, how they got to, um, to fund the study. So I could see all the peer review process um, at work there. It was quite interesting. But this is on the, on the site, so I had to reread the book. And I was struck by the notion of the future that is so pervasive in that book. The future as it came out through the modeling in the, in the computer models that were generated, the future seemed certain unless you acted. And the whole report was, of course, a call to action. If we are not more conscious of uh, the natural resource shortage, the way how we squander natural resources, etc., um, and then what, what would ha happen. But I was very much struck about this uniform uh, notion of a future that was certain. And if you look at the kind of futures we have today, it's no longer a future with a capital F. It's futures in a plural. And the predominant notions today, I would say, is that of fragile futures, volatile futures, and also futures that are shrinking because we do not have a long time horizon anymore because the present takes and so much of our energy, so much of our attention. The crisis, instead of being a turning point, has become a perpetuation of a, of a condition. And we also, if we look at um, psychological tests like this um, Minnesota uh, multiphasic uh, personality inventory, which is a famous test in, in psychology, um, what we see since 1940, since this test uh, was started on college students in the U.S., we see a steady increase in uh, emotional distress, in dissatisfaction, and um, this seems to be related to a different outlook of the future. 
Now, <clears throat> the, um, my second part begins here with uh, the question really, how can this quest for certainty, if it does not end up in fear that paralyzes, how can it be coped with? And here I want to introduce one definition that uh, stems from Frank Knight, an economist who in the 1920s, uh, he was interested in economic risk, but he made this distinction, which I still think uh, is, is of interest today, uncertainty as an unknown outcome, obviously, but it is governed by an unknown probability distribution. We just don't know. There may be a probability distribution somewhere we, we don't know. While risk, the outcome is also unknown, but uh, there is a known probability distribution. And of course, risk is not a modern concept. Risk goes back at least to the 13th century, maritime trade in the Mediterranean, when you had the first rudimentary bankers and insurance companies insuring the wares that were shipped across the Mediterranean. Bordel spoke about the capitalism without an, eject an adjective. And um, you would, uh, through this kind of proto-insurance, you were willing to bet on the uncertain outcome that the wares you were shipping across the sea with all the risks involved, obviously, would arrive, but the outcome was uncertain. Today, we have another distinction between danger and risk. And here it is interesting that um, danger, this is one of the many definitions, a, involuntary exposure uh, in potentially harmful temporal spatial circumstances. It's uncalculable like the uncertainty that Frank Knight mentioned. But risk originally, as in the example of the maritime trade, risk could be positive or negative in outcome. While today we associate risk with a negative outcome. And the kind of taking risks as an emancipation from fate and this discovery of being able to shape one's destiny has been turned into uh, danger. And I think this is partly Ulrich Beck with his Risk Society, again an incredibly influential book at its time, and uh, Ulrich Beck uh, was one of the first one to point to the involuntary nature of being exposed to an invisible substance, namely radioactivity and its harmful um, consequences. But I think what Ulrich Beck did uh, was to reverse dangers and risks. When he speaks about the risk society, the way he writes about it, he really speaks about the danger society because the positive possibility of an outcome is not there. It does not figure there. And the risk discourse that we have had since, beginning of course with uh, nuclear and radioactivity, nuclear energy, 
then was followed by genetically modified organism by other forms of biotechnologies, nanotechnologies, now we are into fracking, um, etc. This public risk discourse often equates risks with dangers. So this positive, the possibility of a positive outcome has been lost. And since 2008, we have the Financial Risk Society, which uh, I think made many of us um, thinking about what are the limits to the prediction based on computer modeling, especially as it turns out that many of those who were involved in financial trading and in the financial services um, openly admitted they had no clue what was going on in the computer models they, they were using. So <clears throat> this um, puts the technological risks into the center of something that preoccupies especially the relationship between science, technology, and democracy and society today. But technological risks started already much, much earlier. And one of the most, um, the most consequential uh, technological risks were, of course, the consequences of industrialization in Europe, starting here in Britain, and then um, <clears throat> being um, taken over by other parts in Europe. And the risks came, of course, to what happened to people working with the new technology under the new regime of industrialization. And these risks had to do with accidents, the machines, and what happened to the people who were killed or who were disabled. It had to do with unemployment, because it became obvious that machines were replacing human labor. And uh, this is an ongoing debate until this day to what extent there is substitution by new technologies and uh, generates unemployment or whether it's being shifted to new kinds of employment and so on. And the kind of coping with these uncertainties that were generated at that time was the invention of the welfare state and the invention of insurance. And insurance is one of the greatest um, social inventions, I would say, in terms of allowing people and uh, allowing former generations to cope with uncertainty. Today we are also seeing the limits of insurance despite reinsurance companies but we clearly see with the kind of the global impact and uh, the uh, climate change uh, and new kinds of uh, risks that are involved we see the limits of insurance and so um, <clears throat> scholars like Peter Hall and Michel Lamont come up with uh, a new concept that may or may not be able to um, later with the benefit of hindsight say yes this was a new way of coping with these uh, technological risks namely uh, social resilience. Now <clears throat> I will not uh, go too much into the new public management 
except um, to point out that the political significance of neoliberalism has also led to a massive individualization of risk, responsibility and, uh, and rewards. And it has transformed the collective imaginaries. Um, we see new technologies of performance of the self talking uh, to um, individuals, talking to young people. It is surprising to the extent that they are internalizing performance criteria of what they need to do. Um, and we see the technologies of performance in academic institutions, and I'm speaking here in front of an academic audience, so I don't have to tell you more about ranking, benchmarking, and impact uh, factors. Now, let me <clears throat> just wrap this up by pointing out that these changes bring some unintended consequences. The Audit Society, Michael Powers here at LSE, has written about it already uh, 15 or 20 years ago, a way of coping with risk. And um, we also see the growing reliance on governance by numbers, indicators that reduce complexity, but indicators that nevertheless, if you are not careful enough, can also lead to the piling up of false certainties. <coughs> so <clears throat> let, me, let me now come to where I see the cunning of uncertainty at work. If we want to um, come closer to uncertainty, not only as something that threatens us, but as something that is part of our condition, our condition humaine in, in this world, um, we are very quickly uh, confronted with what I call the embarrassment of complexity. We live in a complex world and this complexity haunts us. The complexity brings back to us the limits of what we can do and this uh, I think is also a change that we have witnessed in the last few decades compared to the glorious 70s when people were confident that they could master complexity in every form and, uh, and, and shape. And complexity, as we know, has to do uh, with adaptive systems. It has to do with nonlinear dynamics. You cannot just remain in a cause-effect scheme anymore because there are so many indirect causes and effects. They play out at different time scales, at different speeds and these systems are open and evolving. The future is not constrained by the past, but there is something like past dependency, but <clears throat> uh, this is also something to be taken into account, and there are these multiple feedbacks and multiple equilibria. Now, there is one area where that has embraced uncertainty, one activity, and that is research. Science and research from the very beginning have known 
that research means to move forward in the territory of the unknown. Uncertainty is inherent to any genuine research process. If you know already the outcome before, you're not engaged in research, you may be engaged in implying knowledge for a specific aim, you may be doing development, but genuine research is inherently uncertain. And for science, this has been part of uh, its project from the very beginning. The experimental method is one way of dealing with uncertainty, but once you have settled with one experiment, you move on to the next and you embrace the next uncertainty that you want to uh, turn into certainties. And <clears throat> I would like to mention here the ESC that has also embraced uncertainty in the sense that we are funding researchers who are engaged in this kind of pursuit of frontier research and knowledge with an uncertain outcome. So we are not insisting on tell us what will be the deliverables, what will be the outcome, but rather we trust that this is an inherent uncertainty, which is also the case, by the way, for innovation. So I don't see a kind of split between here frontier research, here innovation. Uh, they share this characteristic of uncertainty. We have a large number of case studies on innovation because people want to find out what makes an innovation successful. Uh, we have also empirical studies into failure because you learn from failures, but we have no theory of innovation to this day. And uh, I maintain this is so because of the inherent uncertainty. So what is it that uh, equips science to thrive at the cusp of uncertainty? The first, and this is a very important dimension, is that scientists know Every certainty is only a temporary certainty. It can be overthrown, it will be overthrown, and even if we look in a sort of Kuhnian way at the large paradigm changes, of course certain things remain, but um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the bottom line is always um, any so-called certainty may be overthrown uh, tomorrow. And it is this particular play between the scientific imagination and the insistence on empirical evidence that makes this confidence possible. You strive to have certainties, but at the same time, you're not discouraged by knowing that this certainty may only be temporal. And of course, <clears throat> the the role of the peers is a very critical one. Its peers, um, I'm not going to go into peer review here, but I do think that critical thinking that comes from peer, again, is something that allows science to thrive at the cusp of uncertainty. And then, and there may be other factors, but uh, then I think it is very important <coughs> that in science the role of serendipity is recognized. Now serendipity means that you discover a phenomenon, you discover some kind of connection 
you discover a new material that may not even exist in nature that you have not been looking for, but you recognize its importance. The fact that you have not been looking for it may mean you have not been looking for it and that's it. Or it may mean indeed you recognize uh, its, its uh, importance. And at one point I was studying the discovery of high temperature superconductivity as uh, one of these unexpected breakthroughs in science. And it turned out that there was a French group that had exactly the same phenomenon created in its lab that later won the Nobel Prize for Bednotz and, and Müller. Uh, and they did not recognize what they had created in the lab. And there are many examples of this in science. So serendipity is scientists' best friend. But in order to have serendipity as your friend and ally, you must be able to embrace uncertainty. Now, the dreams of the Enlightenment were to take these wonderful uh, things that science and rational thought and rationality could accomplish and transplant them onto society. As we know, it failed. And it also led to the split under which we suffer until this very day between having, and in, England, in English you speak about the sciences and you mean only one part of what I call Wissenschaft, namely the whole, that includes the social sciences and humanities. And this split came about as one reaction to the disappointment that was caught, that was caused by this dream of the Enlightenment having gone wrong. The sciences morales, as they were called at, 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 at the time, were split. They were not considered science in that sense anymore. And this has plagued us, uh, I think, to this very, to this very day. And um, we can trace it back as a result of the disappointment that was caused perhaps by this naive assumption we can just take um, this playing with uncertainty and just transplant it into society and this clearly does not work. Um, impact assessment in my view uh, tries to eliminate ex ante the uncertainty and what you get is an assessment of something that you can expect but you will not get the unexpected, you will not get the serendipity that um, is so uh, important. Now, the cunning of uncertainty is at work also in another way, in science, but perhaps more importantly also outside science. And this has to do with the role of error. Uh, James March is an organizational sociologist who has uh, studied the way how successful organizations um, become successful and uh, how they change, if they change at all. And um, he posed the question, why do successful organizations innovate? Because it's very obvious, if you are a successful organization, 
the greatest chance to keep on being successful is if you reiterate your success. But reiteration, like in biology, uh, can never be done one-to-one, -one, and so errors come in. And he traces the reason and the way how organizations, successful organizations innovate to the errors that creep in by trying to replicate the success of the organization. Now, <clears throat> error propagation and detection and management plays, of course, an enormous uh, role in engineering, as we know. But we are not so good in um, error management and error detection in other ways. And in <clears throat> this book by Charles Perrow, again, one of the landmark books at the time, Normal Accidents, Living with High-Risk Technology. He looks at the way how um, errors or near-miss errors are dealt with in two different areas, namely in aviation and uh, on the seas with ships. And uh, aviation industry had started rather early on in anonymous reporting systems for near misses. So pilots who were uh, caught in a situation that could have ended badly, they were invited to report anonymously and they were speaking to trained pilots on the other end who were asking the right kind of questions. So it was not just a monologue, but it was a, a, a dialogue. What happened then and what did you do with this engine, uh, etc. And in this way, the aviation industry has been able to build up a remarkable safety record based on its analysis of errors. And this did not happen at all for ships at sea. Partly it also has to do with um, the temptation <coughs> and uh, the, the ships still be belonging to different nations and uh, less interest on the part of ship owners in safety and more interest in getting the insurance and things of this kind. But it's a very interesting contrast how um, looking at errors and analyzing errors can lead to very different uh, outcomes. Now, this um, is also true for other areas that uh, are not directly linked to technologies. Mistakes were made, but not by me, is the title of a book by Taurus and Aronson, two psychologists. And they take uh, one of the best-known um, psychological theories, the, the theory of cognitive dissonance, as their starting point. Now, what happened back uh, with Leon Festinger was that he, in 1956, he was investigating a group of people in the U.S. who were convinced that the world would come to an end and the aliens would come on a certain day to transport them to outer space. So he was following uh, this group and he became interested, you know, what makes this group have these beliefs and what will happen if prophecy fails. And prophecy failed. The world did not end. The aliens did not come. And so he discovered that the leader of the movement made an announcement the day after and said, because this 
small group of believers had such a strong faith, the world had been saved and the aliens were not coming. And this was the empirical basis on which Festinger developed the theory of cognitive dissonance. And we all recognize it because we do it also all the time. If we have two inconsistent attitudes, we have to decide which one to believe, which one to take action upon. And if confronted with the inconsistency, we are very ingenious in finding justifications. And in this book, they go through self-justifications uh, in the medical area, doctors who made mistakes, who find all kinds of reasons why the mistakes were not being made, the military, the politicians, the criminal justice, and so on. So <clears throat> this is another mine of um, the importance of errors. Now, of course, you can ask, why um, do we hold on to these um, justifications and why are we cognitively not able to have two uh, incompatible uh, cognitions uh, and try to solve the tension in this way? Now, there may <coughs> certainly be evolutionary reasons for this, um, but um, the, um, the conclusion to be drawn is that uh, this cognitive dissonance, uh, the unintended consequences of it, can be very costly in terms of self-justifications. And the cost uh, is that of the victims not getting compensation, feeling demeaned in terms of the human dignity, etc., etc. And so I want to, to end here because I think I have been speaking for quite long <coughs> by <coughs> just um, trying to pull some of the threads uh, together. The cunning of uncertainty where I uh, think that science is the best place in which we can learn how to cope with uncertainty and how to embrace uncertainty, but how to take this outside and have the public participate in this uncertainty without turning away and uh, <clears throat> feeling that uh, this uncertainty is threatening them is of course the other question. And um, <clears throat> the other uh, cunning of uncertainty I think is involved in moving towards a culture where we learn from mistakes, when we are ready to learn from mistakes. And uh, this has both an individual dimension, it has an institutional dimension. And um, so this is one of the conclusions I would draw. Then uh, <clears throat> I just want to give you two uh, examples, um, one of the past and one of the present, how this uncertainty in the relation between science and the public between science, technology, and democracy has played out. Dominic Pestre is a historian of science and historian of technology um, in, in, in Geneva now. He, he comes from Paris. And he looked, together with his students, at many, many documents of the way how 
mistakes were made and how mistakes were eventually corrected in the history of technology. And this is what he has to, to say. I read it for those uh, in, in the back, perhaps. Contrary to what managers, engineers, politicians, and risk experts want to make us believe, it is the massive mobilization of the population, of dissident experts, and of victims, which have led ministerial departments, industrialists, safety committees, and courts of justice to modify their attitude and to come up with proper <coughs> regulation. And then another example, this is from a forthcoming book, A Good Science by Charis Thompson. And she is looking at uh, stem cell research. Um, and as we all know, this was one of the hot topics. Uh, and if there is one area in research that had ethics written into it, was human embryonic stem cell. In the US, this led to massive intervention on the part of um, president, presidential committees, etc. And she shows how over a relatively short period of time, the kind of tension and the uncertainty that was there on all sides, not knowing in which direction, which would be the major next steps in research to be taken, what were the ethical uncertainties on the other side? How should um, politics deal with it in a society where this became a moral discourse, um, the value discourse? So, and, and she's able to show that the political attention and public controversy have not led to a slowdown of research, not to an increased regulatory burden, and um, the end of free scientific inquiry. So can we think of striving at the cusp of uncertainty, not only in science, but also with science in society and with society in science? Um, I think it needs acknowledging the importance of uncertainty not as something negative, but as something that is inherent in science, that is inherent in the human condition, and to couple it with an open culture of learning from mistakes. And I want to end with uh, Sir Karl Popper. The knowledge itself, and that means all of our knowledge continues to evolve, and we do not know yet what we will know in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Well, no, I, I, I think this works. Uh, so we've got time for questions. I might probably just have a minute or so while people who have to leave to watch the football uh, go. <laughs> Uh, but when we do start the questions, which will be any second, if you could indicate uh, that you would like to ask a question, then get the mic uh, from one of the mics that are roving, or will rove. Okay, I've got one up there. Which, uh, which, which is the football game? Uh, England against Poland. Oh. <laughs> uh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> okay, so the lady there on the third row, fourth row. 
Well, could you say who you are and if, if, any, if, if you've got an affiliation, you could tell us Sure, full disclosure. Hi, I'm Bakani. I'm a consultant looking specifically at impact assessments. So I was really interested in what you had to say about um, the fact that uncertainty doesn't seem to be rewarded in this whole impact agenda. I just wanted to ask um, a little bit about whether you think it's a positive trend. I'm obviously slightly biased, but thank you for a great talk as well. <laughs> Your question was whether it's a positive. <clears throat> well, this always depends on where you start and how, uh, what your criteria of uh, evaluation are. Um, <clears throat> for me, um, impact assessment is one part of a much larger package. And the package has to do with <clears throat> the change in the way how public services are delivered. It has to, to do with the way how we are asking for accountability for public funds, uh, etc., etc. And <clears throat> I would not deny in any way the legitimacy for asking for impact, but I think um, <clears throat> in terms of actual assessment, there is one difficulty involved in it, and the difficulty again has to do with the time dimension. There are certain impacts that you can see immediately, and very often they are the less interesting ones. And then there are impacts, and this goes a bit back to the complexity and nonlinearity, that you will see much later, that may be completely unexpected at unexpected places in unexpected forms. And I think if you don't make room for that, you miss out, the, in my view, the more interesting part of the picture. So you get the, the immediate results, you get the details. Um, this is legitimate, but um, I wish that you could also you know, find ways of uh, looking back to do a sort of retrospective prospecting in, in terms of um, <clears throat> becoming aware, uh, I mean, if you, if you would go back 20 years from now, and if you were to do an impact assessment of whatever you look at, you know, schooling or, um, you know, academic research, etc., and you use the best guess that you can with um, incomplete uh, empirical evidence, of course, uh, I think you would be surprised what you find in terms of the long-term unexpected impact that was generated by things that were not seen at that time. Hi. Hi, I'm Mike Otsuk. I'm in the philosophy department. So, you, so uncertainty might be understood as being in a situation where you don't know what will happen or maybe is happening or has happened and you don't even know the odds. But what is going to happen doesn't necessarily have to involve the possibility of a downside or a harm or a bad. And you mentioned in the case That's of correct. risk, again, we don't know what will happen. We do know the odds. And it also involves the possibility of a downside. And I think even the earlier notion, I suppose, ratio of a venture um, still involves going out to sea where there is a downside. Mm -hmm. And I wonder w why the contrast is, is drawn between uncertainty, which doesn't have to involve a downside, and risk, which does. Instead of drawing the contrast between uncertainty and, and fortune, for, fortuna, or, or luck, where the thought is you know the odds, but it obviously doesn't have to involve a downside. That would seem to be the, 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 the most symmetrical contrast. 
to draw. Well, uh, you may be right on logical grounds, but I would say uh, the weight and role of Fortuna has declined. Now, you may challenge me on that, but I think we are, um, compared to the Renaissance, uh, compared to the 13th century, I think uh, also when gambling was invented, uh, interestingly, the role of Fortuna was a much stronger one. And uh, today, luck is always good to have in whatever you do. But uh, I don't see that you can make a scientific career only with luck and without uh, being really engaged in the hard and playful way of working your way through uncertainties. So have one on this side, then we'll go back to you in a second. Yeah, John, please. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is John Allen. I'm a, a biochemist at Queen Mary University of London. Um, uh, I enjoyed your, your, your lecture enormously. Um, my early contact was simply reading the logic of scientific discovery, having been taught at school that science was a, a process which led to certain knowledge. Um, I was fascinated and um, um, made the course to think by Popper's book, because of course he's exactly correct, it doesn't. And, and you say very eloquently that uh, research has to deal with uncertainty and what appears to be what is an advance in knowledge is simply another stepping stone in an uncertain process. I wonder uh, the people who are afraid of uncertainty seem often to dominate um, research funding organizations, not the ER. <laughs> not, 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 not the European Research Council, clearly from, from what you have said. Um, but I wonder if you could comment, how, how does one engage with people who still have this view today in the sort of post-Popurian world. I have a little example. Um, previous current funding applications, this is a colleague who shall remain anonymous, it's, it's not myself. Uh, title of project, funding body, NERC, which stands for Natural Environment Research Council. Mm -hmm. Status, rejected. Reason for rejection, if known, the application was too risky as the hypotheses may turn out to be false. <laughs> uh, oh, and the only comment is, and these people hold the purse strings. What does one do? Yes, <laughs> I, I am not going um, <clears throat> to defend them. <laughs> but um, what I can say from the experience of the European Research Council, where we really try you know, to encourage risk-taking, even if the word is loaded in, in funding circles, is that very often the peer reviewers themselves are risk averse. They want to be on the safe side. They do not want uh, to be confronted with the fact that they may make a mistake. You know, and indeed, you know, the project may not lead anywhere. So um, there have been some very few uh, experiments with peer review. And I know only of one where the peer reviewers were told in one control group 
to be very liberal and they were really encouraged to take risks and to fund this kind of project. And the other ones were not told anything. And lo and behold, uh, you know, it made a difference. So uh, I think one way is indeed, uh, you know, to tell the, the peer reviewers to encourage them with the help of the funding agencies. But of course, if the funding agency wants to make absolutely sure that there will be an outcome, and this again is part of the logic that I tried to, to sketch before. You want to eliminate uncertainty. And what you are eliminating is also the kind of openness, the serendipity that may enter and you don't know when and where and how. Um, and to, to encourage more of this, uh, this, this kind of opening. And very often it also means um, to have the courage and the encouragement to, uh, to go um, across disciplinary boundaries. Gentleman behind, Mike. Um, Joe Parker, also Queen Mary. Um, I hope we get let back in. Um, uh, I'm also uh, a biologist or computational biologist and I really enjoyed your talk. Science, as you mentioned, has always tried to fill in the blank bits and generally it's done pretty well, but more and more areas right at the frontier of research um, are coming into uh, a, a meeting areas where deterministic approaches on the one side and statistical, stochastic approaches on the other side um, kind of fail to meet really. A good example of that is in my own area where um, the more I can tell you about the behavior of an individual gene in an individual organism at a single point in its developmental history, the less I can tell you about its evolutionary history because you make you have certain average assumptions are required. And in a sense that the uncertainty that moving from one model to the other represents is something that more models and more data and more understanding are quite unlikely to be able to bridge. And that seems to be true, I'd suggest, of more and more areas of science. How do we deal with that and how do we communicate that to a public that obviously wants some utility from our research um, at some point? Well, you know, I wonder whether <clears throat> the view that many scientists have that the public wants certainty is really uh, the, the correct view uh, or whether this is not something that um, <clears throat> is also part you know of a, of a culture the way how science was seen science delivers precisely what you said you know the certainties and uh, therefore this is uh, something that the public expects because of its image and imaginary of, of, of science and I think uh, the, the way to counter this is to let the public see not only the outcome, but much more of the process of what research actually consists of. And um, <clears throat> there are some interesting um, new ways of involving, in particular, kids um, and, and young, young people in making them part of the research experience. And this is one way of bringing them in to, to make it very clear. It's not you push a button and out comes a result or you, you, know, you, you do certain steps and you get a product. This is not how it works, but to take 
um, <clears throat> these young people on the journey and to share with them the process of, of discovery. Uh, gentlemen, are the, are the, the three people with their hands up, but the one, first one is the no, next roll back and then that gentleman but in the middle. Right? Yes, thank you. It's a wonderful talk. I am um, a non-academic uh, among the academic uh, uh, assembly. Um, as Carl Popper pointed out, as you uh, in your words, that knowledge is is, uh, is knowledge evolves. Knowledge evolves, and the future is very uh, very uncertain. Future is full of wonder, as it were. Now, in such situation, the idea of legacy of great men, and Carl uh, Popper was certainly a great man, a great mind. Could this notion of what you call legacies, could, could it not come in the way of working out our future, our dealing with the future as we find it uh, ahead of us? Thank you. Okay. Well, I think every, <clears throat> every generation, every person, you, you have to reinterpret the legacy also in terms of what the legacy means for you um, under given historical and uh, other circumstances. So I don't think there is a, a kind of legacy uh, without being reappropriated and being changed in the process of appropriation. And I think this is what we are doing with <clears throat> these kind of legacies here. George, George Gaskell. Yeah, George Gaskell. Uh, I'm from the LSE. Um, thank you, Tim. <laughs> I was just wondering um, if, as Festinger showed us, uh, most people are very enthusiastic rationalizers, why would democratizing uncertainty or democratizing science lead to better decisions? I, I just... I, Maybe I missed something you said, but you went from Mrs. Keach and Festinger to <clears throat> the benefits no, of... No, this was not, um, not uh, immediate. <clears throat> so, this was part of the cunning, related, the cunning of uncertainty related to errors and mistakes that are being made. And uh, <clears throat> so not everyone is a scientist, but we all uh, make errors. And therefore, <clears throat> I am putting the emphasis here on moving towards a culture of learning from mistakes, analyzing mistakes, looking at our biases, finding out why we have certain biases, and we all have biases. Uh, now you can say this is a scientific approach that we can use in democracy just as we can use it in daily life. And if you take <clears throat> some of the examples that, uh, <clears throat> that you find in, in, in this book, um, <clears throat> indeed, um, and, and there is a long list that I did not uh, put here, but if you look at the mistakes that were made by the military, costing lives, enormous lives, to not just the enemy's lives, but your own people's lives. Or if you look at politicians' <clears throat> mistakes that were made 
uh, like uh, you know going into Iraq and things of this kind. So it's full uh, of these examples of justifications for what turns out to be a mistake. So, and I think this is something for democracy um, to, to deal with. And the way how to approach it is partly through a scientific approach and a scientific method. So that's what, how I would approach it. Um, hi, it's Stuart Theobald. I'm a philosophy PhD student here and also a working analyst, um, working financial analyst. Uh, your speech was fascinating. I just want to ask a question on the, the distinction of physical and social sciences that I think follows nicely from the question we've just had. If I, I mean, you mentioned the financial crisis as having created a, a period of great financial uncertainty. And uh, if I interpret that correctly, I think modern portfolio theory since the 50s has been an elaborate process of convincing us that Knightian uncertainty is in fact Knightian risk in financial markets. Uh, but the extent to which that might be, uh, have been a successful project is the extent to which the theory is performative, that it creates the financial system which thereby delivers the risks that our models tell us is going to be there. Uh, and I would like you to tell us how that can be interpreted as doing science on the cusp of uncertainty rather than a kind of elaborate social engineering project that shouldn't really be thought of as scientific at all. Thanks. Well, let me give you one um, answer that I found fascinating when I looked very much from a distance into, um, into who was involved in the modeling. And you had two kinds of people. You had economists and you had physicists who had drifted off to Wall Street and similar places. And they were modeling in a different style. Uh, the economists were trained and believed and knew Gaussian curves. So this was a basic assumption of their modelings. It was a Gaussian distribution of probabilities, etc., etc. The physicists knew that there are power laws in the world, in the material world, in the natural world, and power laws that are also according to the data that they looked at in the financial markets. Now depending whether you make a model with a power law assumption or a sort of Gaussian curve assumption, you get very different kind of modeling behavior. Now this may be one answer. You can say economists are less scientific than physicists. I would not say this. It's a different style of working and this again brings back we need to talk across disciplinary boundaries be it social sciences be it natural sciences in order to find out more about the kind of assumptions that underlie these tools that we continue to create I mean just as one of the, the previous um, speakers uh, mentioned, you know, the <clears throat> growth of statistical modeling, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with more data being generated every day, we will see more and more of this. So it's all the more important to know what are the kind of assumptions that we are using when we work with these data and when we, uh, you know, put them into, into models and so on. Gentleman in front of the ask a question. 
Thank you very much for bringing that. I just want to, do you think that famous concept of physics developed by Werner Heisenberg, the uncertainty principle, might have any bearing on your approach to uncertainty from a sociological, historical, and cultural perspective? I cannot answer this question. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, I, I don't. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fairly, fairly well-defined principle in physics, and I would, um, I would be very reluctant to, you know, take it out and uh, make a metaphor out of it. Yeah, it's coming down, Richard. Uh, Richard Bradley, I'm in the philosophy department here. So, um, so I, I get, this is a, the question is sort of basically, I'm trying to work out how radical your, uh, your program is, and, uh, this, the sort of program of embracing uncertainty and, and sort of what we should stop doing when, once we embrace uncertainty. And I, I, I guess I think the, the sort of main rival here, but I'm, I would like to know whether it is a rival or whether you see them as sort of co-strategies, would be the kind of taming uncertainty mm -hmm. view, which is, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, carried out through these, you know, the insurance is probably the sort of very good example of a, of a tame, but also <coughs> hedging main, yeah. hedging technologies, trying to maximize expected value over the long run and so on. So there's this sort of wealth of technologies that have been developed over the, mm -hmm. the last hundred years or so that I think have largely been concerned to, to try to smooth out the uncertainties across people, across different states of the world and so on. Now, I'm not sure whether you think that's all, you know, to the worst. We should stop doing that kind of thing and we should, you know, embracing uncertainty means no more insurance, <laughs> you know, no more hedging, <laughs> have the courage to sort of leap forward. Uh, or whether you see these as sort of partners in the battle against a sort of hysteria about risk. And, with different emphases. Uh, I, I think in order to tame uncertainty, um, it may be good first to embrace it. <clears throat> and then you can think about taming it rather than the other way around. And <clears throat> I, <clears throat> uh, this strikes a, a chord with me because in my book on curiosity, Insatiable Curiosity, I speak about curiosity being the driving force of, of science and um, very much, you know, the, the motivation of people doing science. And I also point out that curiosity um, does not, you don't know where it will lead you to. And the people who are curious don't even care where it leads you to because you are, it's a passion, it's a real passion. And no society can tolerate a passion going wild without any kind of constraint and regulation. And this is why I, uh, in, in this book I speak about the taming of curiosity. And uh, society tames curiosity by channeling it in certain directions. Now innovation is one way of taming curiosity by saying go. You're curious, wonderful, you know, go in this direction and innovate. Uh, another way of doing it is the risk discourse. So the, this is, if you want, the reverse of innovation in, in, in that sense. And the other taming occurs by um, people saying, well, there are certain values and morals and ethics that need to be um, <clears throat> sort of the, you know, the 
the kind of um, uh, constraints that you need to draw around whatever, whatever you do. So um, th this is just the, the word taming uh, resonates with me. And um, I think taming uncertainty, to a certain extent, this, this happens. And I would um, go along and say, yes, um, insurance is one way of, of taming um, uncertainty. But of course, um, we need more of these kind of taming tools. But as with curiosity, if you go too far with it, <clears throat> if you tame too far, in, for science at least, you know, then the golden, uh, the, the goose stops laying golden eggs. So um, if you stifle curiosity, you will get nowhere. If you let it loose, uh, society cannot tolerate it. So somewhere in between, and I see it not as a contrast, but rather as an interplay that needs to be worked out in more detail. Maybe one last question here. So wonder, Doug Kell, one thing that you didn't mention at all is the concept of what the objective function is in the first place, because I would hazard that if you've decided what it is, you will thereby decrease the uncertainty. It's slightly a Bayesian view lurking in the background uh, of what it is you're trying to find out. If for a scientist, scientific truth is the objective function, then I think scientists know precisely where, where they're going and why, even if they don't know the path by which they're going to take it. If it's a social system and stopping the city bankrupting us, then that's a, a, a different kind of objective function. But I think the objective function should be part of the concept of uncertainty. So obviously my question is, do you think that's anything to do with anything? Maybe that's the difference, maybe that's the difference between a philosopher and a social studies of science person that, that I am. I don't think in terms of objective functions. Now, um, I am also um, very much interested in empirical data. And uh, one thing that um, <clears throat> not only me, but my colleagues in social studies of science, who started uh, in the 70s for the first time to enter labs they wanted to know what's going on in a lab, so not only to write about it or to you know, interview people, but actually go there. They were surprised that the word truth never came up in conversations in the lab. These were working researchers. What they were interested in was, does it work or does it not work? What can we do in order to make it work? But the, the truth you know, it's an approximation of something that probably everyone um, accepts that this is an ultimate objective function. But in the daily life and daily practices of researchers, the word never came up. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, there is a reception uh, outside, and you're all invited to it, and you can carry on uh, asking quite a Elgin have any questions more informally. Uh, but I think we should now obviously thank our Papa Memorial speaker very much.